0: My name is Rohan Gunatilaka, and I'll be hosting the sessions in the Great Hall. This space is pretty insane. Um, uh, it's a bit like a cathedral, and we're, um, was, uh, there's a, there's a um, famous book. I think it was out sort of 10 years ago or 20 years ago um, called The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which is all about open source uh, programming, and it describes these two different ways of having um, Of uh, programming code, so being this very top-down cathedral style and a very much bottom-up bazaar style. I think today what we're hoping to achieve in these sessions is more of a bazaar style conversation in a space that's a bit like a cathedral. So with that in mind, um, uh, welcome to the first of... um, there are six sessions like this going on overall during the day and so you'll all experience three um, and uh, the topic of today's uh, session is, uh, of this particular session now, is user-generated content and social media, because there's a number of different lenses through which we can look at digital uh, R&D in the arts, and um, we had to come up with six, and this is the, the first one today. And I guess um, we've had um, probably five or six years in which social media has become, been really mainstream, and so we've seen um, it being used in a, in a large number of ways, everything from um, the, the um, marketing and communications all the way through to impacting creative work and creative programming itself. So we'll um, hope to hear some stories of that. I'll just talk a little bit about the, the format for this session. It's very quick. It's 45 minutes. So if you're, if you're in agony, then it won't last too long. Um, um, and uh, what we're going to do, we've got three really great speakers on the panel and they're gonna give short um, presentation, short talks about their experience um, in this broad field of uh, social media and uh, user-generated content. Um, And uh, they'll talk about what's working, what what isn't working for them and their experiences. And after that, the purpose of their their, uh, contributions is merely to get the ideas in the room, to get us to have some things to talk about. And so, the, the the bulk of the session, we very much um, us trying to uh, have a conversation, discussion within ourselves here. Um, so uh, be ready to. Uh, if, if at any one point during this session you're feeling angry or frustrated, um, or then this is a this is a good sign. Um, it, it's a it's a, it's a sign that uh, there's something you feel passionate about and there's something you want to share. So um, if I if uh, the um, being aware of one sort of emotional response to this session could be an interesting way of looking at how to to how you can participate in as well so um, a final thing before I introduce the speakers is that uh, like I said I'll be hosting three sessions in here Um, if you hate how I've done this one come and tell me about it and I'll make it better for the second one and if you hate that as well then I'll come make it better for the third uh, in the spirit of R&D because that's what we're talking about Um, so we have three speakers, um, we have John McGrath, who's um, the founding, uh, or the, the, the first um, artist Director of National Theatre of Wales, and previously he was here in Manchester with contact for the best part of ten years, I understand. Uh, we have uh, Jane Burton um, from uh, Tate Media, she had, she's Head of Content and Creative uh, Director there. And Laurence Childs heads up uh, digital and design work um, with the... the the Royal Museums in Greenwich. There's there's obviously a cluster of museums and sites there in Greenwich, and we're going to hear from them all in turn. So uh, with your permission, I'll pass you over to John to share us a little bit of his
1: experience. Thank you, Rowan. If I can start with an apology, I've been sneezing for the best part of the last 72 hours, so if I... Digital discourse is interrupted by my analogue nose, I uh, do apologise. National Theatre Wales is a national theatre that was founded and created on a social network. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the work that we've done and three um, lessons that I've learned in doing that work in the next five minutes. So that social network was set up in 2009, May 2009, um, very early in those five or six years that Rohan mentioned, where social networks have become very much at the center of what we understand as digital and the web. We started off with a Ning-based platform before we had a building, even an office, and on that platform we asked a question, what, should have worked, what sort of work should we do and where should we do it? And out of that there has been an ongoing conversation that you can still follow if you want to Google Community National Theatre Wales, um, with many thousands of participants. There are about 4,000 different blog posts on there, all of them in some way still asking and answering that question, whether that's someone advertising their own show, someone commenting on one that I've made, or a big debate about the future of writing in Wales. We've attempted to put the digital question at the heart of all our creative ideas and decisions about our live work. So each show, at the very least, has a digital question at the heart of the conversation we have about it. Most spectacularly, perhaps, in terms of user-generated contact, user generated content that happened with a show called The Passion that we did in the town of Tolbert east of 2011 um, you can still find the archive the, the living archive of that work at port It was a huge site-specific piece made with the actor Michael Sheen that took place all over the town over three days, watched live by many thousands of people, but with a depth of content online that was generated both by the core creative team, by a team of community bloggers who were very engaged with the show. From the town, many of them young people, and most importantly of all, by the audiences on the days themselves, who unbelted out streams and streams of content such that hundreds of thousands of people, thousands of people, started following that piece of work throughout the world. And I think it probably was the first large-scale piece of theater work that was genuinely experienced via Twitter by a vast majority of its audience. We keep on trying to innovate in what we do and we keep on trying to ask the question of our audience and of that core community who we address with our very founding question. So for example, a couple of weeks ago we launched our our third year of work um, and we set an official launch time at um, 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday the 24th of January and invited a whole bunch of people to that event. But then we leaked all of the information at midnight the night before to all of our online. Community. We were encouraged to spread it, um, spread the word, and comment. So, by the time that official audience had reached us, there was already a vast amount of social media content being generated way beyond our control about the event and about the season. So, those are some of the things that we've been doing. What have I learned? Three main things, maybe. One is First and foremost, this is about community building, not ticket sales. We're not adding value to tickets. In fact, buying a ticket is one of the ways to join our community and one of the ways you can start doing more things. Secondly, it's all about buy-in at every level. The passion wouldn't have worked if Michael Sheen hadn't been blogging away, hadn't been posting information of him as the lead actor in the show online. Our community wouldn't work if I wasn't stuck in there daily responding to a student who asked a question. And finally to keep asking questions. We're still asking the question of our community, what kind of work should we make, where should we make it? We're still getting answers. Some of those answers are a surprise, some of those are what we want to hear, some of those are a real challenge. But as long as that question is at the core of what we do, I think our community and therefore our theatre company will stay alive and lively. Thank you. Thank you John, that's great. Jane please.
2: Hello, I hope you can hear me okay. Um, So innovation in the use of social media and collaboration with engaged audiences to generate artistic content. I'm gonna pick just uh, three current projects that raise issues and questions in this area. And um, I'd love to tell you what I've learnt, but I think a lot of it is actually it throwing out an open question that I haven't been able to solve yet. So um, I'd be very interested to hear if people have answers to some of these things. So the first project is called This Exquisite Forest, and it's a collaboration I've done with um, Aaron Koblin and Chris Milk. Sorry, Aaron Coblen and Chris Milk and the Google team, and it's an art experiment where um, anybody online or at Tate Modern can contribute to a shared. Artwork, it's, a, it's an animation done with digital drawings tools that we provide. Um, and six artists from, who are represented in Tate's collection have started off the animations, and then anybody can add to them except uh, their work may be rejected. So there is a moderation and curation process. We've had a huge response to it, and some of it is truly awful and some of it is absolutely inspiring. So, my question really is how do you moderate creativity? In the first instance, we outsourced it to a company that does moderation, um, and it became clear that they could keep out stuff that was inappropriate, but they couldn't make that distinction between what's good artwork and what isn't. So it, right now it's moderated by me and Erin Koblin, and that's clearly not scalable. I get to see a lot of fascinating stuff, but you know, how, do, how do we... So there's my question. How do we create moderation Tools, filters that really can understand genuine creativity and not just whether somebody's drawn a big willy. Okay, project two, um, BMW Take Live Performance Room this is in its second year. We're about to kick off the new season uh, with Joan Jonas at Tate Modern. And it's a performance art series devised purely for an online audience. There's no physical audience present. So Joan Jonas, in a couple of weeks, will be coming to an undisclosed location at Tate Modern. She will put on a unique performance that we will live stream into YouTube. And uh, there will be, we hope, an online um immediate uh, viewership and response. We've created a kind of conversation gadget in our YouTube channel so people can comment as the performance unfolds and they can use Twitter, Facebook or Google+. Um, so here's the question. It undoubtedly extends reach. Uh, we are finding new audiences for performance in doing this. But YouTube is a very feral environment. A lot of people are not expecting to see performance arts and they turn up at our page, having been pushed there by MPU ads, and they don't like it, and they will quite happily comment on that, uh, and it can get ugly. So, yes, it's great to reach new audiences. There is an expanded global audience that we are reaching in this way, but how... Do you better target visitors in a space like YouTube so that you get those who are interested but you don't involve those who really just don't want to be there um, in our performance space? And also how do we um, help artists to create for this new platform to think about their performance in relation to this new type of uh, way of experiencing art and uh, in a sense sort of look after them as as they adapt their work for this new viewership? Project three um, is called the Gallery of Lost Art. And this is uh, six months into its existence. It will last for a year before being lost. And it's an immersive online exhibition of art uh, that traces the stories and physical remains of art that's been lost, destroyed, decayed, um, or stolen, etc., or simply disappeared. Uh, and some of the great masterpieces of the last hundred years have been lost. It could only exist in a, a virtual space, so that's why we have created it online. But increasingly, I think there are fantastic tools that allow an online gallery to be much more than a catalog of images, that we can approach a more immersive quality that's experiential and parallels in some way the unique experience of visiting a gallery. So the question is what can these online galleries of art do better or differently, and how can than a physical bricks and mortar experience? and I think there are some things that it can do better and differently, and how do we harness social media around something like an online gallery of art to um, reach more people and to enhance that experience? So for uh, the Gallery of lost art. I wanted to throw out the fact that one decision we made at the beginning of the project was to release it sequentially. So rather than going, ta-da, here's the exhibition, each week we we started with 20 stories of lost work and then each week we added one more through the first six months of the project. That allowed us to push our content, our stories, our images, our traces of these works out through the blogosphere. And whilst the site itself has got a very healthy, about 80,000 visits at the moment in its first six months, uh, we have reached literally millions through the blogosphere. That's through our, our own social media networks, but also getting it seeded um, through key bloggers and articles online. So there's a really interesting thing there, which is about more, many more people are experiencing our content through the social media and blogosphere than will ever literally come to the physical, not the physical, the virtual site. And I think the same is true of uh, museums generally, whether physical or virtual. So how do we... Think about taking all our stories, all our content to where people are and not necessarily expecting them to make a journey back to a website or a physical gallery. And just to throw one thing out there, uh, which I think is really interesting Topshop, I discovered um, this week, has one million friends on Facebook and 10 million on the Chinese equivalent, which is called Weibo or Weibo, excuse my pronunciation. What does that mean for museums and galleries and cultural organizations? Are we prepared to kind of follow the retailers and clearly there is a a real charge into the Chinese online market at the moment and take what we have, what we can offer to a truly global audience? Are we ready for that? Thank you.
3: Thank you. Um, I hope I'm hear me. My um, main experiences of using social media for artistic inverted commas content um, is really centred around using Flickr. We've had a long-standing relationship with Flickr, both um, using our own digitised content but also as a competition platform for the Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition, now in its fifth year. As a group, that's grown to over 10,000 members, which is a very vocal, loyal, creative community, and competition runs annually, culminating within an exhibition at the Royal Observatory, displaying winners and shortlisted photographs across a number of categories who most recently extended the use of Flickr and Twitter as a combined platform to generate users' photographic contributions with the Ansel Adams' um, From the Mountains to the Sea temporary exhibition, currently at the National Maritime Museum, which really exceed, uh, succeeds in three ways. So the promotional message, delivering learning outcomes, and also an integrated gallery design. That's very much a part of the actual designed experience. Um, The community pool from Flickr grew rapidly before and and during the show and offered the opportunity for photographers um, and Ansel Adams enthusiasts to see their work in the same context within the museum. The Flickr pool pool grows as we use machine tags to reflect how visitors to the exhibition are rating the public photographs whilst they're actually in the exhibition. The successes of both of these projects are working in an existing platform. There's already an engaged community around the subject matter. The responses and enthusiasm when presented with the opportunity to get work seen in connection with the museum's history and objects and arti- artists such as Ansel Adams has been fantastic. The promotion from individuals within that group has, invo- involved has helped generate the interest in the project. The problem will always be around using third-party web services from a technology point of view and the steps needed to make sure that the gallery experience remains intact. Copyright has also been a careful consideration as both projects become more successful, there's a tension between keeping an open and collaborative process using those public platforms and the needs for the museum to use their content in other ways, or the desire to use it in other ways. Um, Another issue that we start to face is one of quality as the pool grows and the experience is open to a wider community. Uh, This is a quote from the Ansel Adams group pool at the moment. Um, Some of the very strong images in this pool are being diluted by some way, sorry, being diluted by some very wishy-washy images, pun intended, and that is a great shame considering the purpose of the group intended for. Just wondering what the criteria for moderation for an online exhibition alongside Ansel Adams is. Um, what we said back to that is it's important to us that the group is open to everyone, i.e. those of the professional standard or amateurs slash beginners. Everyone is invited to take part, regardless of their photographic skill, as long as they're reflecting the themes of the project. Ultimately, we want people to be inspired by Adams's work and by each other's and to share and exchange their thoughts and ideas. Another tip, our two major science projects we've used um, collaborated with the Zooniverse team on citizen science projects, which are Old Weather and Solar Stormwatch. These have been uh, incredibly successful in helping give the museum profile with a very large, dedicated, and engaged audience and the users generating the findings from exploring large amounts of data through gaming mechanics. Finally, we've worked with groups on digital participation projects that have led to three exhibitions in a permanent space that opened in the museum um, in July 2011, called the Compass Lounge, which reflects the breadth of the museum's digitized collection. These are smaller, more focused, but has led to artistic expression through co-curation of content, specifically digitised for the space or newly created artwork in response to the collection. By far the most popular has been when new work has been created in response to our collection rather than just the selecting of content. So it is something that informs space in the future and how we work planning our public engagement strategy. Each of these examples are ways that we have steadily brought the public into public spaces and are going through the process of letting the public in via digital interaction. Through the Compass Lounge, we've opened the museum up to the, the possibility of co-curation, but there is still concern around the term about the kinds of outputs it generates and what processes works best: small focus groups, using web services, or even some more sort of open approaches. A question that always comes up: whether there is an audience outside. Sorry, a question that is always comes up is whether there is an audience outside of those that are just participating. At the moment, it always feels that, the, that what we do is a very controlled, creative response, and we're trying to explore ways that could provide a less controlled way of displaying public involvement. We've got three new permanent spaces at the moment in development, uh, which will open over the next 18 months, all of which will have creative digital participation at the heart of their approaches.
0: Thanks. Great, thanks, Lawrence. So we've heard three different perspectives um, from the diff- three different organizations. What we're going to do now is create some user-generated content, which is jargon for you're going to talk to each other, So um, John, Jane, and Lawrence have all had five minutes. You're going to have five minutes talking to the people next to you on your table about what you found interesting, about what you just heard, what you found challenging, what's the reason you came to this session and not the other session, what's the question you're interested in about social media. We'll do that for five minutes, and then we'll break out for questions. So um, let's make some noise. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. Sorry to... um to break off the conversations I'm sure they were just only getting going so so now we've had a chance to warm up one's mental juices and one's larynxes. I might, get, I might go a bit Jerry Springer on you so apologies um, uh, but, so does anyone have any questions or comments they don't have to be questions for the panel but we have mics my only, my only instruction is uh, before you speak please say your name and if there's, if you have an organization you'd like to mention, then please mention the, the organization you're from as well. So please, the gentleman there.
4: Thanks. Hi, my name's Matt Adams. I'm an artist with Blast Theory. Hi, Matt. And um, when you said earlier on about, you know, if there's anything frustrating you, it's a good sign to speak, I, I was happy to report I was already frustrated uh, at, that, at that stage. And I wanted just to make the point about the term user-generated content before we go too much further, which is a technical term that comes from primarily a web design and media design origins and uh, brings with it a whole set, if in my view, slightly toxic assumptions about who we're doing this for and in what way we are doing it. So when we think about the idea that, that, you know, if we continuously talk about the idea that we're making things for users who are going to generate content, we are already off on the wrong foot. And I know that the term is firmly embedded. I'm not expecting everyone to drop it overnight, but I wanted just to make that caveat that in my mind, I prefer to think about publicly created contributions rather than user-generated content. And that that some of the the issues we have around opening out to audiences, is partly to do with our sense of what it is that they're doing and whether they are uh, coming to, to, to contribute around the edges or whether they're at the centre and the heart of how we think about the work that we make is for me the sort of fundamental question in in this entire field
0: and a very good advert for the panel that Matt is on in the afternoon as well, thank you for that contribution, any other questions or comments to anything that came up, we have Ben here Hi, I'm
5: Ben Templeton from a small digital agency called Thought Den. Um, I'm interested in the practical differences between how you manage each platform in terms of Facebook and Twitter and blogs, because I think it's impossible to treat them all the same. And I'm wondering about, yeah, how you practically manage those different platforms in your engagement with social networks.
0: Great. Are there any responses from the the panel on the platforms? And also any comments with regards to the semantics of user-generated content and how that shapes our behavior and thinking?
2: Um, I I would just say that, um, yes, you're right. I don't think the platforms can be treated equally. I think each type, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or emerging platforms pinterest etc etc have their own etiquettes and their own communities and we actually need to spend time kind of understanding who those people are where they are what how they behave and what what they want from us the museum what we how we become part of the conversation so it's a bit like lots of different rooms with different people in having different conversations and you wouldn't drop into the room and just blather out the same thing you you adjust the context Um, we have a, a social media team at Tate, which is growing because it needs to. Um, every day there seems to be some new thing that I haven't heard of. There's Vine, is new and interesting. I don't know if you've seen that, which is like a kind of video gif that we're trying at the moment and I think could have potential to become another way of um, engaging people with art and spreading our message and, and joining in but uh, it's pretty hard keeping up with it all and I'm certainly not the expert but luckily there are people at Tate who do have the role of social media editors and uh, are the experts, yeah.
3: Um, I think it's about choosing the right tools for the right job and, and then setting the parameters within, within that, that particular project um, but on a wider sense I think we have a um, a museum based uh, social media policy and I think it's everyone's uh, role to get involved and to, to help with any project basically and that does and doesn't work but is getting increasingly more so that um, everyone needs to be participating in it.
1: Um, I'd agree that we need to be very aware of the different personalities of the different media um, as a small organisation we probably have a total staff round about the size of the Tate social media department um, <laughs> that means that I think we also have to um, think about the personal affinities of the people who are on the staff. What do people enjoy engaging with? What are their natural um, ways of conversing and of of, um, spreading and finding out their own information? So also trying to um, find the personalities that exist within the organization and how they um, match and relate to the different kinds of media that are available to work within.
0: Can I ask a follow-up question which is, um, uh, around this idea of participation fatigue and that often as a um, uh, as a, uh, someone interested or a, a community member of a particular organisation, I'm often asked to do lots of things or I'm being reached out to a lot. How do you get the incentives right so that you don't just annoy people by, um, hey, do make a video for this competition and so on? Like, Because I think... Um, uh, I just, is, that a, is that a phenomenon you've experienced, or is it? Like...
1: I think that links back to, to what Matt was saying. I think people um, engage if their engagement is meaningful, and if you're sending out a whole bunch of messages, oh, do this, you know, make a video of that, and actually, you know, really nobody is really watching them, or it's not being actually, it's it's not affecting what the organisation does. Is is my is my contribution? It, or, changing in some way, on whatever scale, the actual organization, the the company, the um, the thing as a whole. If it is, if it's likely to, if it has the potential to, then it will be a meaningful contribution. If it's something, as Matt says, around the periphery that's a project that someone wants to run in order to score some um, degree of participation or make (coughs) some numbers, then ultimately that won't be meaningful and people will weary of it
3: set tasks, make people do things, <laughs> collaborative kind of approaches.
6: We've got a... <laughs> we've got a mic. Can we get a mic to... Our
0: fellow um, we have a sprinting mic coming your way.
6: Yeah, hi. It's Stuart Dempster again from JISC. Uh, we've done a fair amount of work on um, social media and user engagement and things of that nature. And I think there's a, a risk here in terms of You know this being being considered to be uh, a buzzword uh, and we see there are examples where social media strategies uh, tend to be broadcast only so in other words it's the institution just broadcasting on the social web um, amplifying its messages and that's all fine and dandy without taking into account um, the real value of the social web which is analytics in other words what impact what difference does it make in terms of your online reputational management, for example, and it's quite interesting when you look in cultural heritage, how few organizations actually consider their online reputational management. So if you take TripAdvisor, for example, if you were a gallery or museum, I think there's very few organizations actually actively manage their online reputation, which obviously in the commercial sphere, we heard Google before, but there are other commercial players, there's an active role there. So it'd be quite interesting if people are actually considering that, on the panel, um, just on the
2: TripAdvisor thing. Certainly, for Tate, uh, we are looking at um, trying to improve things like, you know, uh, if, if there's been a particularly awful posting about somebody's experience. Let's hope that doesn't happen too often. We do actually try and monitor TripAdvisor and give a helpful response. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, kind of curating your digital presence. Um, uh, and, and it's important to do that. I think also the idea of conversation, which you, you mentioned, is it, is really important. It's not all broadcast. It's, we, it, we need people to enjoy the content that we have for them and can give them and the expertise we might provide. But actually, a lot of the stuff that happens in the social media um, uh, channels that Tate has is about people having fun with each other and actually exchanging wit or knowledge or um, some, you know, their own expression I suppose and some of the most successful things are where we're genuinely allowing people to, to express themselves to each other and play off each other so I think it's almost like it being a good party host you know don't dominate the conversation but just try and get it going
0: Great we've got a question from or a comment from the chap in the orange shirt Hello uh,
5: Matthew Trim from Broadway in Nottingham um, it's a question or a sort of uh, a similar provocation to to Matt Adam's uh, point, um, we very in our very brief discussion kind of talked a little bit about kind of value judgments, uh, and in the arts and artistic workers in the, the precarious nature of their employment, I sort wanted to ask a question about um, you know if people essentially contributing to the content of a of an institution. Uh, you know, or even becoming part of your marketing team, so to speak, should these people be paid um, in some way? I mean, Jane, you referred to Aaron Copley's work. But, um, you know, Aaron Coblin made a number of pieces around kind of Mechanical Turk, the Amazon platform that people get paid, you know, a cent to draw a picture, or um, and so on. And I, yeah, I guess it's a question about the kind of power relationship between an institution, and,
1: um, yeah, it's kind of user-based, so, t- as to use the term. I, mean, I, th- I think the prospect of being paid should always be part of a continuum, should be part of the continuum. So, if you have a, a bunch of people behind, you know, a, a digital wall that will always be on salary and others who are expected to contribute at a distance, I don't think that's healthy. If you have a, a, a more, um, varied and vibrant network where people can shift um, from a position of, of voluntary involvement through to um, being supported, um, through to working for the organisation, all those possibilities are there, then that I think is, is vibrant and possible. In terms of micro-payments, um, that's not really something that, that we've addressed, but I don't know if you have.
3: Um, in astrophoto Photo, we, we have an agreement with anyone who submits, and, and yeah, there's payment made to those people who submit content. Um, with the Ansel Adams, that isn't, we don't pay, and that's interesting that it's sitting as the, the content is sitting within a paid exhibition, um, but it's a small part of that paid exhibition, and all those contributors are made aware that, that there is no payment, but they were all ecstatic about being involved and being associated, so I think there's a trade-off.
0: Yes, we have a question here. It's in the front.
3: Hi, I'm Stacy from The Young Vic. I, we've touched on it a bit already, but I'm very interested in how you balance competing intentions behind your social media strategies. And so whether you kind of set particular targets and objectives for things like website traffic and conversions, and then balance that out with the playfulness and the engagement or how that all falls into place? I, I think um, I think it's
2: kind of an emerging ecology. I don't think we at Tate have quite figured it out yet, to be honest, I, I, I'm not sure who has. I think probably the retailers are much, you know, if you did look at Topshop or some of these people, you'd learn more from them than from the museum sector. But I think, um, we certainly there, there are topologies of message that we have and um, our, our very good social media editor breaks it down in a number of categories and there's always one a week that is a sort of more fun and wit and, you know, playful. There's always one that's going to be more content driven. There'll be one which is asking, one a week will be asking for some kind of creative response or, um, you know, submit a photograph in response to a theme that, and one might be uh, you know here's something you can win or here's how you can get some see something before everybody else a sort of a, a nice giveaway thing so i think um, you can kind of begin to construct plans that and then work out how well those things do and then do more of the ones that are good and less of the others uh, you can track the analytics do now let you track um what, to some degree where people are going after they've looked at your post. But I think it's quite hard to figure a conversion out in terms of who's actually then going to buy a ticket and come to an exhibition because um, often they're inside, you know, you don't necessarily get people leaving Facebook. Often their experience is in there and they don't necessarily want to come to the Tate website and buy a ticket. But maybe they do a week later when they remember they've just seen this great film about Lichtenstein and they want, you know, that might trigger it, but you can't track that kind of distant um, journey.
0: Okay, um, so the, the microphone's just there. Right.
2: Um, Chris Hammond
7: from Full Circle Arts. Um, I was just going back to the, um, the the difference seems to me that when using social media, that that's very much is participation. And I think if you've been working in participatory arts, or you look at the participatory work you've done real world. We always expect digital to be something completely different where it's not, it's just a tool. So um, Matt's point and and your point, John, about um, valuing what people uh, create and put forward. Because it, it can be quite a barrier actually for, for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, no, actually people might laugh at me if I produce this or I do the other. So I think it's really important that A, you give people easy ways to be able to contribute, and B, you respect and value what they do. And so I think, I think that's sort of different from where it might have just been a, a very one way production like broadcast might be, or, you know, very linear things and so on. So I think it's, it's sort of getting your head around that as well. It's, uh, and I wondered what particularly you do about that, John, and sort of, uh, you know, I, I mean, do, do, you, do you find that you, the physical participatory bit actually mirrors quite well with your sort of online, whether it's social media or... I,
1: I think your, your point is spot on, Chris, that... Um that, and I think there's an awful lot that people who have worked in participatory arts over the years have to, to contribute to this development. And it's interesting, you, you were talking before, weren't you, about uh, almost the. Power struggle within institutions between the learning department and the curatorial department when you 're in the, the visual arts and museum world, and how actually social media is shifting the, the terms of, of that power, which has often been a bit one way um, and I certainly think that the artists and activists uh, who 've been involved in, in participatory work outside of the digital sphere have huge amounts of practice and ways of working to, to bring to this I think for the, for the individual out there or the person out there um, it shouldn't be about here's a digital project, here's a non-digital project, you know, one of the lovely things with with the passion in, in Potoba, you know, was there were all these thousands of people in that, that town involved and, you know the, you, you wouldn't have been able to guess which of them was actually madly tweeting out photos of everything and which one and just come along to sing in a chorus or gotten swept up in the tide of events because actually people don't go around with a big D on their head telling you they're a digital person so I think we we have to embrace participation in inventing what cultural activity will will be and digital is a a real part of that but the skills that community and participatory organizations have developed over the years before they were engaging with the digital are also a huge part of that.
0: One final question at the back. Um, Thank you.
7: I'm Peter Murphy-Burke from Arts Council England. I'm based in Birmingham where there's a lot of hyper-local blogging and by its very essence it's on a voluntary basis and it's about people's opinions. So I was wondering how the panel deal with criticism is that an active part of your social media policy? Do you just dismiss it, or does it actually inform or change your practice?
3: Um, I, don't th- I think we'd like to think we would take it on board, and we do take it on board. Um, I think it, it, I don't know, it works along the, the, the same side of this idea around co-curation and, and being an open uh, conversational museum. Um, part of our corporate plan is be conversational. and. That was put in place about a year and a half ago, and I'm not sure we've got very far in being conversational um, on, a, on a grand scale, but we're certainly trying to do it. So I think the more we can do that, the better, um, and the more we can invite people to kind of have their say within spaces is, is, is beneficial for everybody. And being, as, as Jane kind of said, that kind of um, a place for discussion as opposed to kind of a broadcasting place um, or a kind of uh, just a place where the discussions can happen and around and getting more voices involved within exhibitions. I think, I think that's the, the key. Sorry, oh, okay. ahead. I th- that
1: that's the key phrase: turn criticism into a conversation, actually, and and then it be, becomes something where people can contribute. And the fact that actually there may have been something very negative there can open up a debate and actually give people permission that they maybe didn't think they had to to really engage with you.
2: I would just add, I think it's also important in the museum or gallery to make sure that you do try and involve your curators and directors in the digital dialogue. Uh, And that's been successful to a degree at Tate in that those curators who have come on to do blogs for a show that they're um, launching actually become part of the conversation then and so they are aware of what people are saying and one of the amazing things about social media is that you can ask people what they think and they will tell you and so getting the right people engaged in the digital strategy if you like is important too I think not just leaving it to a digital team
0: Great, well um, the bell has tolled, I'm afraid so um, thank you to the panel for their contributions and mostly thank you all for your attention and time Um, that's the end of uh, this session um, the next session in here will be related to business models for digital engagement, and the one in the other breakout room is with regards education and learning. So just a big round of applause to everyone for that.